Here's the thing to keep in mind. When these new brain components came along, they didn't displace or replace the old brain components. They simply grew on top of them. So we have the reptilian brain, and then on top of it grew the mammalian brain, and then on top of it grew the rational brain. It's like a turducken. Yeah, it's like a turducken. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, through whatever app you're listening to me on. Don't know which app it is, but I'm happy you're here. It is a great day to be alive. Hey, we made it through the first week of 2021, and what a week it was. I'll leave the political analysis to other podcasts and or news sources, but suffice to say that this is a great reminder, all this wackiness that's happening in our world, and it is wacky, folks. It's a great reminder that every day is precious, we should take nothing for granted, and we should do everything we can to make the most of these here 24 hours that we've got together. So by all means, welcome to the show. I hope you take the opportunity to reflect with me through my conversation with this week's guest to figure out how we introduce more meaning into our lives by understanding the connection between money and happiness. Speaking of this week's guest, his name is Bill Irvin. It's spelled Irvine, I-R-V-I-N-E, which by the way is a huge bait and switch, Bill, because I lived in Southern California for a long time. And so saying Irvin when it's spelled Irvine is a trick. It's a trick and I'm trying to, I keep catching me. Anyway, Bill Irvin is an author, philosophy professor, and an active investor, by the way. He describes his intended audience as intellectually upscaled general readers who have a minimal background in philosophy, but who are interested in carefully rethinking the assumptions of everyday life. I read that and I'm like, hey, that's me. That's you, crazy money listener. Okay, intellectually upscale, eh, let's not be too self-congratulatory here, but I mean, this program is slightly more mentally challenging than your average episode of Real Housewives of Omaha or wherever. But I digress. Bill Irvin will join us momentarily to talk about two of his many books, On Desire and A Guide to a Good Life, which are dead in the bullseye of what we talk about here on Crazy Money. Before I get to Bill, let me welcome new members of the Facebook Crazy Money Listeners Group. Yes, as you may have deduced, that's a group on Facebook where crazy money listeners gather to uh, talk things crazy money. You can join by going to Facebook and searching Crazy Money Listeners Group and then clicking Let Me In, I think is what you click. Anyway, here's some new members. Kevin Planofsky, Kim Preacher, Tracy Grant, Steve McNeil, Lilette Quijano dement Robin Frazier, Corey Avayusini. Hope I got that right. Jake Filene's Basement, The Handsome Carrie Franklin, Michelle Boissois, Boisseau, Priyanka Cancherla, Mia Johnson, Bill Pajewski. Hoping I'm getting that one right. Greg Pineda and Paris Aloyo. Hello, everyone. New members from Wisconsin, Washington State, Aurora, Colorado, Livermore, Narinda, California, Kenya, and Abu Dhabi. That's right. Crazy money is huge in the United Arab Emirates. Just saying. Where the money is crazy. I also want to say hello to a super fan, Kay McHugh, who's been with us from since almost the very beginning. I think she's listened to every episode. So I just want to say thank you for your loyal listening, Kay. I truly appreciate you making time for this podcast in your life. I love your daughter and her wacky husband. So thanks for being here. Do stick around. And if you, other listeners beyond Kay, there are plenty more beyond Kay, would like to say hello. I love to hear from listeners at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. By all means, write with your feedback, your guest suggestions, or your gentle criticism, keeping in mind what a fragile ego 
I have. Also, if you like crazy money, sure would appreciate it if you would, uh, first of all, subscribe or follow this show right there on your podcast app and or rate and write a review of the show. It helps other listeners who may be interested in this topic find the show and uh, share it with their friends as well. So with that out of the way, let's talk about Bill Irvin, not Irvine, who is my guest today. Bill is a philosophy professor who wants to make philosophy accessible and applicable to our everyday struggles. His research can best be described as a hybrid reflecting topics that lie on the border between philosophy and something else. What would that something else be? Well, for example, many of his articles address the ethical issues involved in finance. His first two books were on the ethical and political aspects of parenting, and his book, On Desire, one of the two we'll discuss today, has a philosophical component, but also a scientific and religious component. In our conversation today, Bill explains our biological incentive systems, how our brains are like a Thanksgiving poultry trifecta, uh-huh. Remember what that is and why it's important for each of us to develop our personal philosophy of life or a grand goal in living that is consistent with our values and, uh, well, our goals for living, like he said. Bill earned a BA in mathematics and philosophy at the University of Michigan and an MA and PhD in philosophy at UCLA. He has been teaching at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio since 1983. Friends and neighbors, this is Bill Irvin. Bill Irvin, welcome to Crazy Money. Yes, wonderful to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Bill, among many books that you've written is a book called On Desire, which I just completed and found to be very compelling. Why did you choose to write about desire? I seem to have been having a sort of low-grade midlife crisis, and I'm a college professor, and it dawned on me that I maybe wanted to be a Zen Buddhist. And that would require doing some research and giving stuff a try, giving meditation a try. And being a college professor, it also occurred to me that with that research, I could perhaps turn it into a book and and thereby get what we call a twofer in the Midwest. (laughs) That's two for the price of one. That is, I could resolve this midlife crisis by popping out as Zen Buddhist and get a publication out of it because we need these publications in order to get pay raises and to get promotions. And it worked out fine. You know, the book did come out of it, and that was the book on desire. But the striking thing was that in order to have a complete book, I had to look beyond Zen Buddhism at other philosophies of life, at other ways of dealing with the dissatisfactions people experience in life. And one of them was Stoicism, which I had encountered in college, but I encountered it in a logic class, not in a philosophy class, Mm. because it turns out that the ancient Stoics, besides having insights into how to live a good life, were on top of propositional logic, which is the logic that makes your cell phone work, right? It's the basics of programming. And they were thinking about how does and work? How does or work? How does if then work? So I'd been exposed to them in a low-grade way, was exposed to the most important thing, their psychological insights on how to have a good life, and just realized very quickly, you know, it just has a lot lower entry cost than becoming a Zen Buddhist does. And if there are any Zen Buddhists out there listening, this is not a put down. I've been assured by a Zen master that Zen Buddhism and Stoicism are perfectly compatible, you know, like chocolate and coffee are perfectly compatible. But to really become a Zen Buddhist, you're going to have to invest a lot of upfront time doing meditations, doing various exercises, and it's unlikely you'll get an instant return. You'll find out months, maybe years, maybe decades 
it'll all gel and start working for you. But in my stoicism sales pitch, what I like to tell people is that on a three-day weekend, you can get deep enough into stoicism to have a basic understanding of it. Plus, you can try some techniques out, some of their psychological techniques, and you can find out whether or not it's going to make a difference in your life. So worth giving a try, you know, and if it doesn't work for you, well, there's always Zen Buddhism and Plan 3. You can always do both if you want to. Now, you also wrote a book about Stoicism, one of a few books about Stoicism called A Guide to the Good Life. When you were going through this midlife crisis, were you searching for a philosophy of life or as the phrase you use, a grand goal in living? Yeah. You know, the thing about life is you've got one life to live and you look around at how most people are living it and it becomes pretty clear that they're misliving it to invent a, a verb here. What are they doing? They're doing what they would do if they showed up for a final exam and realized they had never studied and realized they had forgotten to come to course. What do they do? You've never had a student do that. Come on. On occasion, on occasion. There was that time back in 1987 when that happened. So what do they do? They cheat. They look on what other people's tests are, what the other people are doing on their tests, and they copy that, thinking that surely somebody somewhere has done their homework. And surely somebody somewhere is on top of that. But then you look around at humanity and you realize there are a lot of people who don't seem to be particularly happy. And this is also true of people. You get these anomalies. You get these billionaires who seem like miserable human beings. And you get these impoverished people who seem like happy, well-adjusted human beings. And so, you know, you face this task of figuring out what's it really all about? Because I have X number of years left to me and I want them to be good years. I don't want to be forming a goal one day and then deciding the next day, oops, wrong goal, and then have a different goal formed and spend my whole life zigzagging between goals. So the idea was to come up with some kind of grand goal in living. And then after that, you have secondary goals that'll get you to that grand goal. But at least you got something that you're aiming at. And the the risk of not having an overall philosophy is that you'll operate in default mode, spending one's days seeking an interesting mix of affluence, status, and pleasure. Yes. And that was uh, one thing that came out that what most people seek is fame and fortune. That's the two quick words to put it, but you have to unpack that because by fame, you know, there's fame where everybody in the world knows who you are, but there's fame in which uh, your friends and neighbors admire you. Or better still, they envy you, right? Envy is one of these really interesting emotions. And there's fortune. And fortune means, again, it can mean billions of dollars, but it can mean relative affluence. And because if you have that, then you can acquire the social status. So the two are connected together. But if you try to unpack what motivates most people, it's a combination of those two things. And yet the problem is... You end up on this, what psychologists call a hedonic treadmill, and that is whatever you get, it only raises the bar for what you want. So I've got what I call the gap theory of happiness, and why are people unhappy? Because there's a gap between what they have and what they want. So most people say, ah, there's a solution to that. What you've got to do is raise what you have up to the level of what you want, and then the gap disappears. And then you'll be happy forevermore. You will live happily ever after at that point. And you actually will be pretty satisfied for a while. But then this other psychological phenomenon comes into play called hedonic adaptation. 
you get used to whatever it is you have. That thing you worked so hard to get, you get used to whatever it is you have, and then you come up with a new thing to desire. And you think, okay, if only I could get this other thing, then I would be forever happy. In your own life, you've probably experienced, you know, you've worked long and hard to get something and then you get it and it does feel really great for a few days, sometimes for a few hours. And then you start taking it for granted. So it sounds like we're on this treadmill, you know, we're like the man on the desert chasing mirages and arriving at the mirage only to find out, well, this isn't actually water. And it's, I'm not even just as thirsty as I was before. I'm even more thirsty because of all of their traveling across the hot desert sands I did to get to this mirage. The wonderful thing is, and many, many different people in the last 2000 years have hit on this solution. And it tends to be a common theme that runs through many rival philosophies of life. And that is, there's a second, much easier way to fill the gap between what you have and what you want. And that is simply to convince yourself to want the thing you already have. Gap disappears. Gap disappears. And, you know, the interesting thing is you become grateful. You become grateful for what you have. And that sense of gratitude can carry you through many of life's difficult situations. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, you need to remind yourself, you know, I've still got a lot. And it could be a lot, lot worse than this. That's the strategy behind uh, Zen Buddhism, part of the strategy, strategy behind Stoicism, and the strategy behind a number of other philosophies of life. How does it go over with 18 to 22-year-olds who are swirling vortexes of desire and unlived experiences and radiantly imagined futures? How does it go over with them when you try to convince them that they will adapt to all the things they think will make them happy? Uh, it doesn't go over well with anybody. You mentioned the people in that age group, but you know there are people my age or older who are still who are still on the treadmill, still chasing the dream. And I encounter these people, you know, who will tell me their level of success, their income, whatever, and then you know conversation proceeds, and then it'll be, and you know, if only I could make, and they'll name a higher income level. If only I were making that much money. That would be it. And these are people who should know better. They've been around the block many, many times. They should know better, but they're no better off than they were before. But here's the thing about young people, again, bringing stoicism in. They have lives that are full of interesting challenges. You know, by the time you're 50 or 60, you still have challenges, but they're predictable challenges. You've seen all sorts of challenges. You've developed your ability to deal with challenges. So they're having new interesting challenges almost every day. And Stoicism provides you with a way of meeting those challenges or a strategy for meeting those challenges. So Stoicism turns out to be useful for them. When I first started writing, by the way, the first Stoic book was The Guide to the Good Life, which I wrote right after On Desire, because in On Desire, I thought this Stoicism stuff is so neat, and yet the world seems ignorant of it. I owe it to mankind to present it in an accessible way, because other people can benefit from this. But I assumed it was an old man's kind of philosophy. And so I've been astonished by the extent to which the college students that I teach pick it up and run with it and seem to appreciate that it works. It reduces the kind of stress level in their own lives, lets them handle the challenges that come their way. 
Has the popularity of people like Ryan Holiday and other authors helped sell them on Stoicism? Yeah, I was actually, I gave a talk a while back, so I did some of the marketing research on this, but Guide to the Good Life came out in 2008. And at that time, there were a handful, count them, fewer than 10 books written on Stoicism for a general audience. There were only a handful. There were a whole bunch of other books, either written by the Stoics themselves, who I should add are very accessible. You can pick up a Stoic book and read it and sort of say, oh, he's talking about stuff I understand. If you pick up Hegel, you know, or Kant, or <laughs> you, you don't have that same experience, but it's very accessible. But then a lot of the books on Stoicism that existed in 2008 were written by academics for academics. And so just really at a high level. I checked uh, recently, uh, two months ago, and I gave this talk, and books on Stoicism are now coming out at the rate of more than one per day. So we're in the middle of this Stoic renaissance. I was lucky enough to get in on the ground floor of that. Guide to the Good Life has been selling very well. It's still in hardback. This is 12 plus years out, still selling very well. So I was the right place, right time. Sheer luck, by the way, sheer luck. Well, it's luck combined with sincere interest in searching for truth. So the proliferation of a lot of publishing is kind of like the proliferation of podcasts where there's a lot of people out there searching to dig into different fields and find meaning. And it doesn't surprise, the sheer number surprises me, but the increased popularity doesn't surprise me. Yeah, but when I wrote Guide to the Good Life, it was Oxford University Press who published it, and they had published On Desire. I sincerely thought I was pulling off a fast one, right? <laughs> that this is a book that was going to sell 12 copies maximum. <laughs> Half of them would be friends who owed me a favor. And of those, many wouldn't actually read the book. I was as blown away as anybody that it actually found a market, and the market has continued to be strong after all these years. There's a tight correlation between desire and stoicism and Buddhism and these other traditions. So let's unpack desire a little bit. Where do my desires come from? They're wired right into you. And we have different levels of desire. But of course, biggest single thing is some things feel good and some things feel bad. And that's just the wiring in you. And so sugar is sweet. You want more. Other things are bitter. You don't want to eat them at all. Some smells are desirable. Some smells are undesirable. Sexual desires wired into you. How did they get wired into you? Of course, the word wired is a little bit of a, of a stretch. They aren't wires, but they're nerves, right? And there's hormones. It's a very complex system. So they got wired into you through a process of evolution. Your ancestors who found some things pleasant and other things unpleasant and who also had a drive to seek the things that were pleasant and avoid the things that were unpleasant, they got plenty to eat and it was the right stuff to eat and they uh, found mates and they reproduced and they had kids who carried the genes for that same wiring. And it's a little bit ironic, but you're wired to be well-suited to life on the savannas of Africa 200,000 years ago, because that's kind of how far evolution has caught up. But you find yourself in a radically different environment than that. Then the biggest single thing was eat and mate and don't get killed. And those were the things you had to worry about. Now, it's those things, 
but there's a whole bunch of other complex things. And of course, with eating, it used to be that finding your next meal was the challenge. You'd get up in the morning and the question is, what am I going to eat today? And now it's the opposite challenge. And that is you have a desire to eat and yet you're surrounded by food and it's good stuff. And then, of course, we have uh, the obesity epidemic as a result. You say that my desires, well, our desires, not just me specifically, but that these are mental baggage from a few billion years of evolution, and they've resulted in what you've termed or cite as a biological incentive system. Right. So how does that work and how does it help me and where does it lead me astray? Okay. If you're at a workplace and you've got a boss, your boss has created an incentive system for you and you'll get rewarded for doing some things. You'll get punished for doing other things. The punishment can be a pay cut. It can be getting fired. It can be getting yelled at. The rewards can be a pay raise. It can be getting praised. Sorry to interrupt, Bill, but it's funny you say that because I wrote in the margins of the book that this is exactly like a sales commission system, right? Yes, the way, it is. Because the way you design a commission system determines how your sales team will behave. Yes. And the way it works is you're getting paid. What's the currency in which you're getting paid? You're getting paid in things that feel good and you're getting punished by things that feel bad. And that's the payoff. Money doesn't work in a nerve system, but the feelings uh, do work. And we found all sorts of ways to trick the system, to game the system so we can get the rewards without doing the thing that we were supposed to, evolutionarily, we were supposed to do to get the rewards. One example is we use drugs. I don't, but some people do use drugs. So imagine the feeling you would have, the euphoric feeling you would have if you were in a basketball game and you had trained really hard, maybe a college basketball game, and it was a tie score, and you were at the buzzer, and you threw a long shot from way far away, went through the hoop, you won the game. Imagine the euphoria you would experience at that moment. It's great. It's absolutely wonderful. You have to work to get it. And it's iffy. And you can get almost that same sense of euphoria by going to the right part of town, giving some money to the right person <laughs> and getting some cocaine. Right. And the interesting thing is those two activities will release the same chemical in your brain, mm -hmm. dopamine. And so we've gamed the system. We figured out a way to get the reward without actually doing the work we should be doing to get the reward. So that's one way it leads us astray. And you write also a very important reminder and a consistent theme on what we explore here around money is that this incentive system is not devised to make us live happy, meaningful lives. Right. But it is actually, in fact, designed to make us perpetually dissatisfied no matter how much we have. Yep. That seems contradictory almost. Evolution does not care about us being happy. Evolution cares about us surviving and reproducing. Any species that has the ability to survive and reproduce is going to stick around. Any species that doesn't is going to go extinct. And it's interesting. And there's all sorts of ways you can work this in to your life experiences. Anybody who's tried, have you ever tried meditation, by the way? Just this afternoon. Okay. Worth doing your first meditation session. If you said to me, okay, I don't want to do this whole meditation, I would still say, well, do it once because you'll learn a very important lesson by doing it once. The meditation I have in mind is uh, the Zazen meditation. And, you know, meditation can take a number of different forms. But what you do is find a relatively quiet place. And the goal is to sit quietly 
for, say, five minutes. You could even set a timer. And during those minutes, your job is just to let your mind go blank. And what you'll find is it's essentially impossible to do. So you'll say, well, that's easy. I'll just stop thinking. And you stop thinking. And before you know it, thoughts will drift into your mind. The thoughts that drift in, and then you'll sort of say, oh, oh, I'm supposed to not be thinking. And of course, a Zen master will say, the harder you try not to think, that doing that is itself thinking, so you don't even want to do that. But then you rededicate yourself to, okay, I'm going to let my mind go blank. And that lasts for 20 seconds, maybe. And then another thought drifts in. And you can look at the thoughts that are drifting in, and you realize they are involuntary. Your mind is like the screen of your cell phone. You know, there are all these deep processes going on, and then they'll bing, send you up a picture, send you up some kind of thing that you should be thinking about. And then you sort of think, well, these thoughts are my thoughts. They're in my mind, so I should take ownership of them. But in fact, they're in your mind, but it wasn't your mind that put them there. There are deeper sources of those thoughts, and we can explore that uh, in a second here. But here's the other thing you'll notice about these thoughts you have in a meditation, that most of them are focused to the past or to the future. So the past, you're going to be thinking about something mean that somebody said yesterday, and you're going to let yourself get a little bit angry about that, and you're, you're going to say, no, 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 I'm supposed to be meditating. And then you'll notice the thought drifts in of, what should I have for dinner tonight? So it's a future-connected thought. And if you think about life on the savannas of Africa, those would be very valuable thoughts to be having. You need to learn from the past. You need to anticipate the future. Suppose that on the savannas of Africa, you had this Zen master who liked to just stay in the moment and who would sit there on a rock, you know, in the middle of the savannas and say, ah, life is so wonderful. Here I am in the moment. I'm not going to worry about those lions we saw this morning. I'm not going to worry about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. Well, he would end up some lion's dinner. Right. And he would drop out of the scheme of things. Now, the interesting question, among the baggage we have with us, the evolutionary baggage, we have a mind, and this is one way of putting it. There are a few different ways of stating this. We have what's called a triune mind. So our mind evolved in stages. So go back several hundred million years and you had a lizard brain that was capable of reacting in a reflexive way to the environment around you. Then go back a few hundred million years ago and you had a mammalian brain, which had that lizard brain, but had the ability to experience emotions. And this is where the biological incentive system came in, these emotions that things feel, they feel good, they feel bad. And finally, and this has only been within the last few hundred thousand years, you had the rational part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex come into play. Here's the thing to keep in mind. When these new brain components came along, they didn't displace or replace the old brain components they simply grew on top of them. So we have the reptilian brain, and then on top of it grew the mammalian brain, and then on top of it grew the rational brain. It's like a turducken. Yeah, it's like a turducken, or here's another way to put it. You know, when your computer breaks down, I live in a, in a Windows environment, so Apple might or might not have something similar, but I know when your computer really blows up on you, 
you have to access what's called the BIOS, the basic input-output system. And then you realize, my God, that is the reptile brain of the computer system. And all these other things, they just layered over the top of it, but it's still there. Okay, so here you are, human being, with this brain that has three components. And these components, the reptilian component and the mammalian component, are the source of many of your thoughts. And your rational brain would count as the display screen of your cell phone. So your mammalian brain says, gosh, you should be angry about something Mm. or gosh, you should want something. And the striking thing is you take ownership of it. But imagine you had this pesky neighbor who kept coming over. So at midnight, you know, you'd hear banging on your door, you'd go down and it would be this neighbor who would say, you should be really angry about what the boss said to you today. Yeah, I've got and then that. Went, went on his way, you know, went back home. And then, you know, you go up and you're trying to sleep and you're tossing and turning. And then you're banging on the door again. And, you know, he says, You were just about to fall asleep. Well, that thing that you should be angry about, you should still be angry about. That's <laughs> what it's like, only it isn't a next door neighbor. It's something that lives within your skull. It's your skull mate. You've got two of them. One is capable of reflexive actions and the other is capable of emotional actions. And then you've got this rational brain that's trying to ride herd over it and make sense of it all. Mm -hmm. So how does that evolution lead to our tenacious, unextinguishable desire for things like money and success and status? On the savannas of Africa, this feels like a tour here, but on the savannas of Africa, somebody who was easily satisfied did not survive. So what did you need to do? Well, you needed to worry about your next meal. And when you got to your next meal, if there was a nice tree with all sorts of ripe fruit on it, yeah, you could just take enough to satisfy yourself or you could save some for later. You could think about the future. Yeah, good idea. But how much? Well, you know what? More is better. More is better. And probably you would have experienced hunger in the past and you knew how bad that was. And so you would start gathering. And there was always this question of how much more. And the answer is, well, how much can you carry? Right. So back then I didn't have a giant freezer in which I could store my antelope. So I had to work with my neighbor. Like as a former guest on this show said, the best place to store excess food back then was in my neighbor's stomach. Yes. And the other thing is our ability to walk, oh, by the way, freed up our hands. So we could carry more, you know, but think about not being able to carry anything other than hanging from your mouth. So we had this ability to acquire various resources and those who were fixated on acquiring under those very primitive conditions, those who were fixated on acquiring more had lots of kids and we have the wiring of those people via their kids. Let's talk about fame and status. A quote you refer to in the book from Schopenhauer says, other people's heads are a wretched place to be the home of a man's true happiness. What did he mean by that? Uh, He meant that if you are out to impress other people, then they have this interesting control over you because they're going to judge you in accordance with their own values. If they had the right values, then their praise would be meaningful and you should seek it. But what if they have the wrong values? Then, under those circumstances, the fact that they approve of you, you should take that as negative feedback. You should say, well, if that guy thinks, likes what I'm doing here, then that's not what I should be doing at all. 
This also ties into something that I've been thinking more about recently, and that is the extent to which people are living their lives on the internet via uh, Facebook, for instance, where it becomes this sort of situation where you're revealing all sorts of things about your life in an attempt to impress other people who will reward you with a little like, you know, or by becoming a follower. And then what happens is they've taken control of your life and you start living for the likes. Yep. Which is why I took Facebook off my phone last month. Yeah. And, you know, here's another way to put it. So I have a very low grade presence on Facebook. I needed to (laughs) create a presence there just so I could send a letter to a newspaper or something. It's one of those things. So I'm there, but just as minimal as minimal can be. Mm -hmm. And yet it's interesting and you would know more about it than I would, but you can you can set it up so it'll ding noise, you know, when somebody has given you a like or somebody has responded to what you've done. And certainly email, you know, can work that way. And then it, your cell phone becomes like, I call it the dopamine slot machine. It's portable. It's in your pocket. And you hear the little noise, you know, like the old fashioned slot machines with the bells going off. You hear the noise, you pick it up, you get the rush of dopamine that comes. Oh, but it's worse than Pavlovian because you don't have to hear the bell. We've gotten to the point where the bell is irrelevant. We're not even waiting for the bell to ring. We're actively opening those apps, looking for that stimuli. And another quote, you're going to have to help me with this guy's name, uh, La Rochefoucauld. La Rochefoucauld. La Rochefoucauld. He said, we go to far less trouble about making ourselves happy than about appearing to be so. And I was like, that is exactly like social media in a time way before the internet. Yes. That's what do they call that? FOMO, fear of missing out. So we create this wonderful picture of ourselves on the internet and then other people can see it and admire. And again, envy comes in. I think envy is one of the most insidious human emotions. We would love it if they envied us. <laughs> yeah. And we reach that stage. But it's all fake. And yet we're creating an illusion. It's not all fake, but there's a huge spin put on what we reveal and what we don't reveal. And then we do things according to what will win their approval. It's one way to live a life, but you know what? You've only got one life to live. Do you really want to live it seeking the approval of people you don't even know? A lot of them are complete strangers. All right. So let's push back. Okay. So desires can lead us astray. And sometimes those same desires that might lead us down the wrong path actually help us create great things. So you say, use a Samuel Johnson quote that says, every man, however hopeless his pretensions may appear, has some project by which he hopes to rise to reputation, some art by which he imagines that the attention of the world will be attracted, some quality, good or bad, which discriminates him from the common herd of mortals. Thus did he predict the phenomenon of podcasting. But in this same warning about our intentions to try to get the attention of the world is the impetus that created great art and literature and music and entrepreneurship. So it's not that having no desires for fame or status is the desired outcome. It's that having some measured amount of desire is what's important. Is that a logical interpretation? Yeah. And it's interesting. You look at the Stoics and what they aimed at was what could be called tranquility. We have to do some unpacking there. For them, tranquility was the relative absence of negative emotions like anger, fear, anxiety, envy, regret, grief. They said, you know, those are the ones we want to avoid. 
they embraced positive emotions like feelings of delight, feelings of awe, and even joy. And then you look at the Stoics themselves and you think, okay, so if that's what somebody's aiming at, how is that going to translate into the lives they lived? And you might think, well, they're just going to kind of be hanging out, just kind of sitting there enjoying the sunshine. But in fact, we find that they were uh, quite ambitious people uh, measured in different ways. So Marcus Aurelius was the Roman emperor. He was in charge and apparently ran the empire very well and would go off to be with the troops. So this wasn't somebody who was just sitting in the sunshine. You look at Seneca, who's currently my favorite Stoic. He was counselor to an emperor, the leading playwright of his age, and the first century AD equivalent of a billionaire. So he did investments. He did a lot and yet wrote all of these wonderful essays and books about Stoic philosophy. Epictetus, one of the most famous Stoics, had a school of philosophy that was quite successful. As a Stoic, one of the things that comes with the territory is a feeling of social duty, a feeling of, and I told you when I finished writing on desire, I thought, by then I was a novice Stoic, but I thought I have a social duty to spread the word about this. And with the other books I've written, same thought. Here is something the world should know about. So it's interesting. You're ambitious, but the ambition is driven by something other than what normally drives people. So most people are out to get the fame and the fortune, but it's possible to be driven and accomplish a lot without having that be the ultimate goal. Let me also tell you about a paradox that arises here. And that is that if you're in that situation where you're working hard to help the public and you're in a system where you get rewarded financially for doing that, you find yourself in this paradoxical state where you acquire wealth and yet the things you're supposed to want, you don't find worth having. So, Which kinds of things are those? Uh, you know, the fanciest car. So I reached a stage of life where, you know, I will sit there and stew over whether there's a $5 thing on Amazon that I really, really need or not, right? Now, I'm a big fan of experience. And of course, with COVID, I can't do uh, the kind of traveling I used to be doing. But it's strange. It's strange to find yourself in a situation where you've got this stuff that everybody works so hard to get. And when they get it, it's gone. I mean, not only is it gone, but they've maxed out their credit card. And they're just feeling, you know, I'm actually pretty happy. I don't need a lot of stuff. I call that the wealth paradox. And I'm not quite sure where I'm going with that, but it is something that I've noticed. Sounds like a good name for your next book. Yeah. Yeah. I copyrighted it. So don't get any ideas. Oh, good, good. I'm going to go right. to GoDaddy and register wealthparadox.com. And of course, the paradox of choice was a huge bestseller for Barry Schwartz. So yeah. paradox is a good name there. But let's go back to what you're saying there. Can I be ambitious in chasing a life of tranquility? I don't think you can be ambitious in doing that. To pursue tranquility, there are a handful of psychological strategies you can employ, strategies that are easy to learn, easy to use. So from a Stoic point of view, it would be, by the way, the Stoics, among other things, were the outstanding psychologists of their day. 
And they came up with strategies for avoiding negative emotions and strategies for increasing the number of positive emotions that you experience. If we have a minute here, I can teach you one of the first and most basic stoic strategies. Yes. Let's weave that in. One of the final questions I want to get to, which is what do I do if I want to lead a life of tranquility in terms of managing my biological incentive system without shutting off my desire to live life? Okay. First step is to learn how to want the things you've already got. The technique for doing that, because then you close the gap, right? And then you can achieve happiness that way. You can be satisfied with the world you're living in. You can derive the maximum positive benefits from that world. And a strategy for doing that, the psychological strategy is called negative visualization. To do a negative visualization, you don't have to find a quiet room. You don't have to sit on the floor. You don't have to do any of that stuff. What you need to do is, first of all, think about the things that mean a lot to you in life. And it can mean your job. It can mean your home. It can mean your spouse or your partner. It can mean your children. Find something that means a lot to you in your life. Step one. Step two, take a moment to consider that thing being absent from your life. So, you know, we live in a changeable world and things can happen and your house can get destroyed. Your job, you can get a phone call from your boss saying, uh, we don't need you anymore. Your children, and this is one example that Seneca uses, bad things can happen. So imagine that this child that you love so much suddenly isn't there anymore. Now, the trick is, you don't dwell on those negative thoughts. You allow yourself to have flickering negative thoughts about that possibility. And as a result of doing that, you turn on certain psychological systems in your brain. And what you might notice, most people do notice, next time you encounter, for instance, the child that you imagine not being part of your life, the relationship you will have with that child, the psychological relationship will be dramatically altered you will appreciate her. You will savor her. You might give her a big hug. And she says, well, what's up, daddy? And, you know, the was... answer... oh. <laughs> you don't put it in brutal terms, but I'm just so happy that you're part of my life. And, you know, there are people who have children and who dream of having children, have them and then ignore the children. And that's a shame. They probably put so much faith in that child completing who they are or in rescuing them from yep. primitive voices in their brain. And when the child didn't do that, they were disappointed. Yep. So there can be any number of reasons for having a child. One of them is to really have a profoundly moving, shaping relationship with the child. And it's a two-way process. You shape the child, the child shapes you. Having a child is a great way to escape from the life you live. If you are the number one person in your life, you learn to share that life with somebody else. But then you see these people who have children and yet ignore the children. There's always something that's higher. This whole exercise of, you know, what if this child weren't here? And then suddenly it becomes a lot easier to get into the relationship, to read to the kid at bedtime, you know, to do the things now, you would actually enjoy doing them if only you, you made time to do them. So what you do is you learn how to, you develop your sense of gratitude. You learn how to appreciate things that are already there. So you don't need to go off chasing new and different things. The downside is it'll wear off, right? 
that's a hedonic adaptation. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is negative visualization is like a lotion that says apply as needed. You can do it again later on. It continues to have that impact. So I don't need to go and buy a Ferrari. I don't need to join a monastery. I just need to take time on a regular basis to reflect on the both good and temporary nature of the things around me and the temporary nature of the bad things in my life as well. Yes. Whatever you're experiencing, the good things are not as good as you think they are and the bad things are not as bad as you think they are. And that's one difference between being old and being young. You know, if you're young, everything is the biggest disaster or everything is the one triumph that will last for the rest of your life. By the time I'm 68, by the time you're my age, young man, Mm -hmm. you realize now, now the good is going to be gone (laughs) within a matter of hours and the bad is going to be gone too. Maybe not quite that fast, depending on how bad it was, but it'll go away too. So whether you're going through heaven or going through hell, this too shall pass. Yep. Well, Bill Irvin, I've really enjoyed your writing and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Where can our readers find out more about you? I can be found at, I told you I have a minimal uh, online presence. (laughs) Not on TikTok, ladies and gentlemen. But I can be found at William B. Irvin. That's B as in boy, WilliamBIrvin.com. And that has more than any human being should want to know about me. Well, thank you for your time. This has been a fun chat. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Bill Irvin. If nothing else, you've made me check my assumptions about phonetic pronunciation, which I suppose is all pronunciation of all future guests' names. I will take nothing for granted if somebody's name is Joe Smith. Not that I would ever have a guy named Joe Smith on, just saying. If his name was spelled Joe Smith, I would still have to ask, is it Smith or Smythe? Bill, thanks for taking the time. Wright State University, kudos to you for having a guy like Bill on your faculty. Love that he joined us on the show today. Let's talk takeaways here, folks. The first one is the biological incentive system. The more you read around the philosophy of money, status, competition, happiness, the more you come back to the way human beings evolved to think about things or to not think about things as the case may be. And the fact of the matter is, is that evolution, and it was evolution, folks, does not care if we're happy. We are not designed to optimize happiness. We are designed to procreate and extend the life of the genes that we have within us. So we have to be aware of the way our biological incentive system works and be on top of it. Otherwise, we let our desires run rampant and believe that with the accomplishment of the next goal, with the attainment of the next thing, we will achieve happiness. And that, as we discussed, does not happen. Second, let's talk about the gap theory, the theory that Bill has between that space between what we have and what we want and how that affects our happiness. If that is how we measure happiness, the gap between what we have and what we want, as he said, you can either get more stuff or you can lower your expectations. And lower your expectations sounds very un-American. It sounds very It sounds as if you've given up, but indeed it is a far more nuanced and productive way to approach things that our happiness will be increased far more reliably if we can be grateful for what we have as opposed to trying to attain more. Because as we talked about with the hedonic adaptation, once we get that next thing, we're going to want something bigger and better beyond that. That's just who we are. Lastly, let's talk about having a philosophy of life or a grand goal in living I think this is critical, and I think it should be yours. I think we are raised 
to accept other people's grand goals in living in the United States. It's the Judeo-Christian ethic. It is live to the letter of the law. You do X, you get Y. That is, you obey the rules and the Ten Commandments, and you get eternal life. I think that's an oversimplification and a dangerous one at that, that we need to decide what we stand for as individuals, that which elements of philosophy and religion and political ideology do you really subscribe to that fits with who you are, what your values are. Make it yours. Make your philosophy of life yours and live it every day. Reflect on it every day. I think mine is something like to tell the truth, to make each day count, and to bring out the best of what's inside me. I think there's probably something about connecting with others. I got I to gotta work that in there. But you work on yours, and maybe we'll compare notes next week. What do you say? Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.